You're listening to First Film First, a podcast where filmmakers describe their experiences of making their first feature film. We'll discuss those experiences in the context of their artistic development and their subsequent career opportunities. Join me as we take a deep dive back in time to see how fledgling filmmakers came to their decisions. Welcome to podcast number three with Barry Aykroyd, BSC. Barry's the cinematographer of such amazing work. Raining Stones, Land and Freedom, Carla's Song, Lady Bird, Lady Bird, My Name is Joe, Bread and Roses, Sweet Sixteen, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, all with director Ken Loach, United 93, Green Zone, Coriolanus, Parkland, The Amazing Hurt Locker, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award and won a BAFTA. And then more recently, Detroit, Captain Phillips, Bombshell, and most recent production on Netflix, The Old Guard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah, thanks for asking me to speak. Thanks. You're very welcome. I'm hopefully disarmed by the memory of all these amazing productions. We can talk about your first, well, not necessarily your first, but I feel like it's your first feature film production, Riff Raff. Absolutely. Not not the first, but... Obviously, the most influential, yeah. In fact, it was the second. Could you start by just letting us know sort of where you were at that time, what sort of projects you were working on? Had you been an assistant? Had you been to film school? What was your place in the world? My background, my background. So, obviously, for for the most of my adult life, absolutely like dedicated to cinematography, filmmaking. And um, But I worked, I'd come out of art college, which had a film department and that we were, we were pretty productive uh, in that in that small college down in Portsmouth really well supplied and equipped and uh, you know made all kinds of documentaries feature films etc uh, etc et you know we and and we got to see dozens and dozens of films you know much in the way that you do nowadays we could analyze them on steam Banks and blah 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 so we had a really good background uh, I moved I moved up to London and started trying to get the jobs as camera assistant on documentaries, which eventually happened. It was a very difficult time to make make a move, as it always is. Let's face it, you have to be determined, and uh, but it's it's definitely in the blood. So by by the time I came to Riff Raff, I'd already shot one feature, which is called Big George is Dead, and. That, that was like a year or so before Riff Raff came along. And I'd been doing pretty good on the documentary field, you know, and I was, I was pretty happy with myself. My daughter had just been born. It was 30, 30 years ago, something 32 years ago. And I uh, got the phone call from Ken Loach, and it was like, mm, it's Ken here. Uh, I know you're very busy and you probably don't want to do this little thing, but uh, I have this, uh, you know, <laughs> one of those kind of conversations. And, uh, you know, and I'm holding my daughter and going, it's Ken Lodge, it's Ken Lodge, it's Ken Lodge, on the phone, you know. So, um, but he, he, he had this idea of making this film riffraff. I mean, his career had, had kind of almost withered away, to be honest. It's not, uh, it was the 80s, it was Thatcherism, social real, his form of social realist filmmaking wasn't very popular, uh, still isn't that much in this country. But anyway, but anyway, he got the money together from Channel Four to do Riff Raff, uh, and I think it was Chris Menges who recommended me to him, and uh, we obviously I jumped at the, the opportunity, and I 
you know, I had my 16 mil Arton camera, which we shot the film on. Uh, we rented a few lenses from Ari or somewhere, no, Cine Europe or somewhere at the time. Uh, and then we, um, and a tripod, my tripod, and that was it. That was the kit, basically. And, and then we, we obviously lighting, the guys I knew on documentaries, Gafford, and we we went off and made this very s small film. I remember at the time it was, you know, it was written as a 90 minute piece for Channel 4. And I, the producer came up and said, they've just cut the budget by 20% or something. So we've told them that we're going to make a 70 minute film, but we're not really, it's still going to be the 90 minute film. So, uh, which it became, which it was, and we be it became, because uh, uh, it was a Ken Loach film, and he went, it went to the Cannes Festival and it started to get recognition and, and Ken's career st also picked up, I can say, from that point again. Yeah, won the European Film Award. I mean, yeah. it's it's a seriously impressive piece of work from the script direction and photographic perspective, mm. and wonderful to get a, a recommendation from Chris Mengies. Exactly that. Yeah, I mean, he I had some slight connection that I, I kind of knew him. He'd signed my union card. I'd he'd followed my career uh, a little, you know, watching the documentaries, which, like I said, were pr pretty good. I'd been working with Nick Broomfield and. You know, made some interesting and won an Oscar-nominated documentary about Anne Frank. You know, as well as you know, really all that fascinating stuff, which would—that's a whole series of podcasts to talk about the history of you know of what you've got, what you've got to see as a documentary filmmaker. And I always took, I always saw that as like my rolodex of information that I wanted to use in life. You know, in cinematography and. You know, so all the documentaries just amount, amounted to a kind of a way of knowing that that is real. This is a very real situation. That is a documentary situation. And the lighting looks like this, but not only the lighting, the performance, the look of people, the way they act and move is really embedded in my work, I think. And I'm, it comes from that documentary way of seeing. And, I, uh, and that, obviously that fitted Ken Loach and riffraff, but I have to say that it, it, it may look like a, a very beautiful film, but I, I felt like I had very little <laughs> to do with it. It was almost like a masterclass from Chris Menges via Ken Loach to myself, i.e. we shot the way that Chris would have shot under Ken's uh, direction, you know. And so the first, in fact, I can say the first three films I did with, with Ken, Riff Raff, Raining Stones and Ladybird, Ladybird were part of my education in that learning this very disciplined style where you have the camera on a tripod at eye level in the corner of the room or through a doorway or in a closet as far back as you can be, leaving the space completely for the actors, shooting it in a very, in completely sequentially, the whole film, not just a scene or sequence, the whole film sequentially and for it to evolve in front of you and to learn how to light without interfering in the performance at all. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a film school in three movies, like you describe, you know, a film school in the style of Ken Loach and, and Chris Menges. Yeah. I, I love what you say about this, the Rolodex of reality. I mean, I think that's one of the great privileges of, of working in film and being a filmmaker is travelling to 
other countries, our immersion in different cultures and different society structures. So yeah, would you say that's the idea that you had while you were shooting the documentaries? Do you feel like you were aware of it at that point or do you feel like you've plumbed into it since? I've used it all my life, yeah, I still do. And when I say that being an assistant camera and on documentaries and then shooting documentaries, I travelled to 50 countries. We travelled to China in the 80s. We were some of the first people to get in to see that. I was shot films in the Russian space mission in Moscow and you know science films and all, all kinds of stuff and actually the one thing I didn't really do was art films which I was always really interested in because of my art it's my background in art as which is sculpture kind of sculpture and I, and that became definitely cinematography which I still see as a form of a sculpture it's it makes uh, it's about the movement and light and shape and three dimensions and I think that, you know you have a you can have a I don't mean 3d filmmaking as in the way of avatar I mean 3d in the sense of living it and understanding it and I think that's what that's what I uh, had from the documentary and from the, and that background of observing the world yeah I guess films conversion of a three-dimensional world into a two-dimensional image then back into a third dimension you know using both time and light to sculpt you know roundness into faces and and roundness into spaces yeah I think is a is you know something that is uniquely cinematic yeah and it's and, and emotion I mean that is and this is what I learned from the Ken Loach thing as well you're going to you're going to come across this level of emotion that is is absolutely incredible you know in, in his films the humor that are side splittingly funny as in riffraff and tragedy which is unbearable to even be behind the camera and know that this is a uh, a performance uh, so you know you had to know that that a way of capturing that is is with discretion and respect and dignity and all these things that I think you have to, you know, if you don't approach the world like that in the first place, you're going to find very hard to to replicate that on film. Because film is an artifice, it's, it's already a problem. We've got, you have to put a camera up in front of someone. You know, I remember when my first documentaries, it's terrifying to hold a camera up in front of uh, a real human being. And especially if they're in, a kind of a position in the in their life where which is why you've gone there to make this documentary <laughs> so it's very it's scary actually that's a very interesting thing that i've not really thought about applying to the world of narrative filmmaking but you know we're always trying to so laurie and i in the previous podcast spoke about trying to capture lightning in a bottle trying to create a reality on the set and I think the times when I photographed something that was truly emotional and truly heartbreaking were the times when, as a narrative filmmaker, I felt that same fear that you had just described in a documentary sense. When you know that you have to bear witness to something because you have to tell the story, but at the same time, you feel encumbered by the the emotion. You want to turn the other cheek, but actually you need to confront the imagery face on. Yeah. Exactly that, yeah. I think that's, um, you know, and so much of uh, feature filmmaking, you know, uh, so whichever drama, whatever we want to call that, uh, you know, it's uh, something that actors have to have to create as well. And I think 
you know, so it's a kind of, it's a privilege to be a cinematographer. It's something that no one else sees is the actual, you know, it's the capturing of that image. That's why um, I've always operated the camera no matter what, uh, you know, level of film. If you, if, you know, I've always treated films without, without a hierarchy. I treat them the same way, if you know what I mean. It, it, you know, the budget can change. You know, the, the, the star rating of, of the performances in front of you can, can change, but my attitude is not, I, I'd like to sit, think, hasn't changed, you know. I probably, lighting-wise, refine things, and you sometimes look at it and go like, why have you refined it to that level? Why don't you just go back to where you were? You know, what was wrong with uh, those very early things you did, things like Riff Raff, which one camera on a tripod in the corner of a room with four, we had, we, we, we would shoot with like four lenses, nothing wide. This is a trick of Ken Loach as well. And Chris, I guess Chris obviously has a much bigger palette in his work. You know, he went on to do all these great, um, killing fields and, and the mission, you know, particularly things like that, which were great and brilliant films. Every film he's done is brilliant, but he's, um, but what you, what it is a kind of satisfying thing is to know that right at the beginning, bringing it back to riffraff, you were finding a way to shoot things really so simply and so beautifully with these four lenses, you know, a fixed lens, a 50, uh, well, we were shooting on 16 mil, so a 25 mil lens as, a, as your field of vision, 65, 85, 100 mil, maybe 135. And those five lenses could shoot the whole film. And, uh, and that's what you did. <laughs> and also the lighting was, is kind of in a crude sense, it's going to be lit from outside windows. It's going to be available light or what looks like available light, but in under control because you, it's not a documentary where that moment is the only moment it's, you, know, you have to repeat the, the moment and the space and the reverse shots and all that kind of stuff. So there's quite a lot of lighting involved or, you know, the, the craft of lighting. But the art is in the relationship between the camera and the subject. That is, that is the beauty of that kind of cinematography. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a kind of a love story happening in the centre of the film that I guess is a string that runs from the fifth minute up to the end credits. And then around that is woven an incredibly realistic depiction of working class life in London in the late 1980s, early 90s, and the economic migrancy that had occurred from regions to London in the search for work. And so I love the idea of the real spaces and the real light. Do you find yourself still returning to the deliberate accidents of the lighting style? Of course, yeah, that's it. The Old Guard is not such a good example in that it was. I didn't shoot the whole of that film and I'd inherited some of the already uh, technical and, uh, you know, uh, the technique. It had kind of been set okay. prior to me getting on the film. So, But when I go back, to, so maybe Captain Phillips is a good example. I had a, I had a moment of doubt when, when I knew that Tom Hanks was going to be in the film, you know, uh, that would I have to change things? Would he want special stuff? Would he, you know, like, should I be thinking about lighting him a little bit differently to, you know, so I, I don't know, because it's Hollywood and it's all that kind of stuff. And I very quickly just drop all that, that, especially when I met the man. 
uh, he's an incredible, generous, and giving actor as a human being as well. And it's he, you know, and why should I be treating him better or differently, or it wouldn't be better, but differently to the Somali pirates who were really the star of the film. And there was, to an example of that was during that film, the filming of uh, Captain Phillips, we don't usually have a lot of monitors around on set, but Tom happened to catch a scene walking out, you know, off, off the lifeboat. We'd been filming inside the lifeboat, I think, and the Somali pirate guys looked so incredible. You know, Buck, I mean, those guys. And, um, you know, the, the skin against this uh, green interior of the of the lifeboat and the sweat and, the you know, the heat and the that we generated inside that. And there's Tom Hanks, you know, this pale white man, acting his socks off. He walked past the monitor and he goes, he looked at it, he says, I've just got to up my game, haven't I? Because he saw, you know, but the point being that they had to be equals in every way, you know, and he knew that, you know, you couldn't do something special for him and not for them. And of course, when you, when you set an environment and then you film the environment rather than find a shot and shoot and make one shot out of it, you know, close up on, you know, storyboard that says close up on Captain Phillips, you know, that has to come from a, the whole world and you have to feel that everybody's in the same space. I So I just carry on with it all the way through my career. It's just everybody's the same. This The, the method is the same. You know, I've, you know, I've altered things and changed things and I use zoom lenses, which Ken would never ever dream of doing. And, uh, you know, and I kind of, in a kind of homage to 70s filmmaking yeah i use the zoom lens to to be like your brain and to be you know to find moments and to extend the shot so it can go further and then a little bit further again and further again you know i often think of it if there isn't like three three parts of a story three stories inside a shot one shot and then you add three cameras you know you're giving the editor this kind of multiple layered multiple perspective view of the world uh, that was something that i evolved but not not the attitude and the attitude remains the same yeah yeah observing in that way and constructing in that way yeah what i find really interesting about riffraff and then in your later work is your choice of camera position not putting yourself two feet in front of the performance but placing yourself at a distance making yourself a sort of third person observer in the space. And I feel like there's never a shot that shows all of the information. But it sounds from what you said earlier that it was Ken Loach's inbuilt sensibility that was then feeding into your sensibility. Well, that, that it, that's true. That's what it was. But it's the reason uh, Chris had recommended me <laughs> was because that that's also a point of... Uh, ways of making documentary you know i became very conscious while i was doing all these years with 10 years of making documentaries 10 or 12 years i was trying to be radical about the way i shot i didn't want people to, to i didn't want it to look like standard documentaries you know i was i was massively influenced by uh leacock penny baker drew those uh you know Maisel brothers those great american documentary filmmakers that was you know we that was of our of my learning process was was that you know as well as those really great films and I, of the seventies you know 
whatever so many of them to to think about when they, when America had a great uh, a great active indie filmmaking sense you know and then of course you know everybody broke the rules in, in you know from when cameras became lightweight were not attached by umbilical cords and things you could break all the rules you know um you know, I assisted Roger Deakins and Dick Pope and Metcalf and these great documentary people that I worked with as a camera assistant. They, you know, I just loved it. They were so radical. We do music videos and we then we go off and do an anthropological film. You know, and they would, you know, it was all radical attitude, and I wanted to keep that radical feel as I started to shoot. You know, and then I ended up with Ken, who had this very rigid system. But I wanted to break it all the time. I wanted to slightly make the camera move a little bit more and a bit more fluid. You know, and he gave me that kind of opportunity. It took three films before I actually felt like I'd broken away from all of the rules. And I'd started to make some of the rules of my own. And eventually, you know, having worked with him for over 12 films, I had to stop doing it just because I needed to express myself, you know. And uh, anyway, that's a long time to be working with someone. And to make a dozen films is quite a, you know, it's, it's quite a feat in a way. Yeah, it's, it's a serious yeah. commitment. It, it's yeah. a cinematic marriage to a certain extent where yeah. when the phone rings, you're yeah. answering faster than normal. Yeah, you, you drop everything else. You go on and do that film. And then you start to know that that's the easy thing I'm doing now. I'm just doing that film again, you know, because Ken's films after all, are more or less the same film told over and over again. You know, they're always brilliantly told stories of oppression and injustice. And I think those are really powerful subject matters. And, you know, that's why films are so great. But I, uh, you know, I wanted to do that, but I wanted to do it in a different way. And, you know, I've achieved that in some ways, but I'll never be, you know, you can never make Ken Loach films. It's only Ken Loach can do that, you know. Absolutely. And I think working with, with one director, there's a process. And I think as a cinematographer, you have to get on that wavelength. Some directors have a more dogmatic approach than others, but it's never completely revolutionary. So I can see how you as an artist would want to expand your worldview with a different group of directors. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. It's, it, yeah, it, you have to have more diversity. One of the things I found interesting from a dramatic perspective was there's a very slightly different technique used photographically between the camaraderie of the building site and the and the fledgling romance. Mm-hmm. What I love is how intimate the camera becomes. Is it something that, that you guys talked about beforehand? What are the conversations about scene breakdown? It definitely, well, firstly, there's definitely no storyboards. And, to, and then what... Um, what is pretty obvious is that if there's any style, any change of the mood in the, in the film comes from within, if you see what I mean. The camera is always there to, to capture that. You know, it is there as, as, a, as a means to capture it. And I know Ken would think that it's sometimes an, an interference and therefore keep things very discreet and very, you know, far back. But, it, it, I, mean, I mean, like I said at, at the beginning, I, this was my, this is part of my tuition. I was, I was learning, you know, how to, where to put the cameras and what to do. And I still, and the great thing that I've carried with me from that is I can still like go onto a, like a half organized film, you know, a set situation on a film, a scene. You're walking into a scene. And something's gone completely wrong and everything's like, well, we can't shoot it this way and blah, blah, blah. And what should we do now? You know, and Catherine Bigelow would say, for instance, 
when we did Detroit, this is what I want to shoot. And it's all this, there's all these people that's going to be doing this and all that. And I want it all to happen and blah, blah. And, and then the, the first AD would just look at, say to her, well, how are we going to do it? And she just turned and said, Barry will do it. <laughs> and that's, that's what I learned from Riff Raff. You know, it takes all that time. But it, and then I just go, it's obvious. This is the position where you can see all the action. We put the camera here. We're not going to dive into the middle of it and do all, you know, like you said, put a lens two feet away, a beautiful, you know, shallow depth of field on a, you know, a really nice anamorphic lens, blah, 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 and then cut back to something else. Because those films would never get made in that way. And I think, you know, you get chosen for certain films because you bring to it a certain thing. And that certain thing, which is often referred to, right, gets, you know, Catherine will say, just do your thing, or Barry will do this, or, you know, and even if I've got a team of two or three cameras, you know, you just have to go, you'll go here. You, and I often give the best shot, I mean, if it's a multiple camera thing, I give the best shot, or the shot that's like the key shot, should I say, to one of the other two cameras, not A, B, or C, but you're on that one, and you're on that one, you're, you're catching these two guys doing this, the main thing. And I'll probably just stand by until we're ready to shoot and then I'll just put myself in a place which adds to those shots if you see what I mean and that so that I all learned is knowing where to put the camera which is a really crucial thing that way you don't need a storyboard if you know uh, you can let the actors be much freer you can let performance develop you can sh- carry on shooting beyond where the storyboard would stop and you can make three stories in one, you know, three parts of a story. In, I think of it like a photograph of, uh, if you see Cartier-Bresson photograph, a very good still photograph will have many stories going on in that frame. And I think of it like that, that each shot should have many, many parts of the story inside the same frame or the same length of shot. Does that make any sense at all? Is that- it makes absolute perfect sense. It's like one of the, the great beauties of Cartier-Bresson is his ability to capture movement in a still frame. Mm-hmm. And so it's that, it's that same idea. By placing the camera in the prime position and following an action, panning a camera from one side of a room to the next, mm-hmm. brings the acceleration of the scene and the energy of the scene puts it firmly in the place of the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. I was rereading The Atmosphere of Crime by Gordon Parks, his examination of, I guess, the streets of America in 1957. Yeah. And as I was turning the page, I I felt the energy from your film Detroit in the frames of Gordon Parks and vice versa. Yeah, great. But that's why I think that cinema is is an art form because if photography can do that, then surely cinematography, with all its flexibility and time and space and ability to be within the story and inside the mind of a character in the story as well as tell you the big picture and follow a narrative and follow a stream of of these images i mean if we are not if this is not an art form i don't know what is (laughs) you know i i trained i wanted to be a sculptor but this but cinematography is more sculptural than most sculpture and Great cinematography is more beautiful than a photograph, in my mind. Cinematography is is a wonderful art form, one of the most unappreciated art forms, I think. But yet it defines the century, the 20th century, and now the 21st century. It defines it. The moving image is that definition, is cinematography.
I rest my case. Absolutely. <laughs> what an amazing pitch. I love that. I rest my case, Your Honour. <laughs> Your Honour, yes. Couldn't, I couldn't agree yeah. more. I mean, I, yeah. I do feel like the way in which each of us conceive of space and space versus time and conflate those two things together yeah. is unique. The feeling that is inherent in the material is sort of uniquely authored. Yeah, exactly. I think author, authorship is a good way of putting it as well. Yeah, you, it, It's to do with how you see the world. And that's been, it will be different because we've all had different experiences and we've come at it from a different place. I think you, there is a style of cinematography, which this may sound rude, but is based mostly on crafting an image. And that's, you know, where you can, you, you could replicate it. You know, there are, that's why so many films are like repetitions. There's some, one, we're suffering from a kind of, a, a lack of uh, originality in stories and writing and you know with so many films and scripts that you're probably reading now are uh, I'm, I'm guessing biopics remakes or historical pieces that you lack originality you know they may be cleverly written they may be brilliant and they may turn into fantastic films but where is the originality and i think you know you can repeat things it is, you know, and then it's less of an art form or you can make original things and it's the ultimate art form. And I think, you know, as cinematographers, that's what we have to strive for, making the original and not the repetition of something. Just going back to riffraffs, as a documentarian, you had your own camera system. So I'm guessing it was like an LTR7 or an XTR prod or something from Arton. XTR, yeah. Right. Yeah, that was your like tool of choice. Yeah, still is. Oh, really? Do you still use Artons? I would. If, if I could use Artons in every film I did, I would do it, yeah. yeah. You can't always, you know. Yeah, to have the cat on your shoulder. Yeah, the freedom of that. For, for instance, Hurt Locker we shot on 60mm with four cameras, uh, but those little lightweight, well, the zooms, they're not a lightweight zoom. It is the zoom, 60mm zoom, which has a great range of 12 to 1. So when we did Detroit, we were going to do exactly the same. I just, at some point, I don't know whether I, I just you know, bottled out or something, but I decided that we should shoot digitally, but with 60mm lenses. So we down-resed uh, the, the Alexa Mini and shot 16 mil lenses so it was hd kind of a bit less less than 2k but um I, th I felt that would suit the film really well and it did but we had the freedom of those smaller lenses you know that great amount of zoom that you because i like that zoom i like to push in as your brain you know if you look at a the way i say it, if you see a group of people and you're in the street but you're not connected to that the group of people that's all it is it's a you have a generic image and then something, someone shouts or screams, and you, your mind, then you have a close-up in your mind. You find, you pick out the the person and the individual, and it becomes so strong. That's what the zoom does. It takes you where your mind would go, and that means the audience sees it in the way that I would see it, or a cinematographer would see it. I was uh, looking at the work that you did on Jason Bourne, thinking about that, 
your work with Paul Greengrass is almost like a macro-micro scenario. The energy of the performance is drawing the documentarian side of you. And then there's these moments of huge scale for the big explosion or the swarm of humans. So it's almost like editorially you're switching between epic and microscopic in terms of here's this event unfolding and then here's what this event is doing to the human instigators. Is that a conscious thing that you're thinking of in the with the bigger productions again I, I did you know i did approach it as in the same way that i approach everything else you know because that would be but you know obviously the the, the scale comes from the fact that it's it's a, a big production and you know the, to tell those kind of you know talking about remakes and 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 you know it, it's a remake of a story so if you have to follow that that attitude but you, but you go back to the document. I, I, you know, I, I refused to get drawn into that. I went back to the documentary, and when you, you know, when it, when it comes to it, you're going to find the character in a crowd and concentrate on that character because that's what, that's what drives humanity is the is the interaction between, you know, our faces and our and what we say and what we do. You know, that's you know, we live in a, a massive world, but we still identify with. A story from any corner of that world when it moves you. You know, it's what we look for in newspaper articles or in in film and in drama and, and in documentary. That we want to know what other people's lives are like, and we and you show that through the their expression and the character, and and that's what you look for. Paul asked me to write something for um, Jason Bourne film for Universal, and I I'm terrible at writing stuff down, and I just thought I pondered it for a while and then I ended up writing I started watching some interesting stuff about documentary filmmakers Robert Drew and Penny Baker and it was about how to use the camera basically it's what they, they, they talked about so I wrote a little thing saying it'll, it'll be like a born film it'll be epic it'll be there'll be an awesome car crash or two in it and and we'll follow the kind of instructions of Robert Drew which was to say he said on this interview we said, fuck the dolly, fuck the tripod, fuck the crane. We're going to shoot and shoot and shoot, you know. And, and so I left it like that. Paul said it was great. And I never heard a word back from Universal. So the film was, was that was uh, that was my brief to the cinematographers, you know, involved. Solid sentiment. And one, I think, that illustrates, you know, your approach to cinematography in a nutshell. With Riff Raff and with the other films that you made with Ken Loach, what you just touched on is incredibly relevant, but is so often forgotten in other filmmaking circumstances. That compassionate approach of treating everybody as an equal. So when you're watching Riff Raff, you're not aware, really, that Stevie is the protagonist. Yes. You do follow Stevie more frequently than you follow any other character, but you're never not aware that Ricky Tomlinson is considered any less of a mm-hmm. protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the world is made of ensembles, isn't it? You know, um, you know, it's very rare you have a story which is about one individual. Because what I was saying before, it's about how everybody interacts that makes the whole story. And... You know, I know that, you know, I've never been able to say what this actor is the key actor. You know, it's a main role to be played. I don't think I've ever, ever done that, you know, in a film. Because when every every character comes into the set or on scene, how can you not treat them the same? And how can you not give them the weight of each other, you know? So I think, you know, like, like I said, with Captain Phillips, you know, 
four Somali pirates and and, and uh, Tom Hanks and plus all the other members of the crew are just all it's that that makes the film not a star name or a star individual or even a group of them like in Bombshell you have groups of them but you know it's everybody in that film that makes it what it is you know yeah and so I don't it's good for me because I find it very hard to be reverential to people who are ordinary people we're all ordinary people and I want to treat everybody the same it's part of you know an attitude to life as it is to to art and to cinema is we should all be equals you know so it sounds to me like when you started work with Ken that you probably chimed in a philosophical level as well as in a artistic level. When Ken came to you with a new project, what were your immediate thoughts when you read the script of Raining Stones or when you read the script of Ladybird, Ladybird? What what goes through your mind? What's that first next conversation with Ken? Yeah, actually, well, that was part, and that's an interesting part of the learning process. I remember we we, we started to recce uh, riffraff and, and when... And, and he, he says very little. And I think, you know, my, my communication with directors has often been when you get to a point where you're saying as little as possible to each other, as necessary, should I say, not as possible. But, and, you know, that's a, a Paul Greengrass and Catherine Bigelow and Adam McKay, those people, you, you've, got a, you've got a complete understanding. And I, I had that quite early on with Ken. I was listening intently. Like I said, as a, a student still, I was... In you know, in, in a student of cinematography and of the drama, drama filmmaking, feature filmmaking, I was ready to take it all in. But I remember we were we were doing a recce. We shot this in Tottenham, not far from where I live up here. And we we went to a little coffee shop somewhere around the corner just to get you know around about eleven o'clock. Ken likes to have coffee. I like coffee. We sat down at coffee and started chatting. Very not so much about the film, but just about things. And um, but there was another director and cinematographer at another table, and they were they were frantically drawing out storyboards, and I was thinking maybe that's what I should be doing. Should be doing this, you know. And it became obvious that that was not the necessary route to go. And uh, you know, Ken would know. He makes little notes on his on his script every day, and he knows what he has to cover. And he knows what the, what will be said and what will be done. And then he makes everybody on that set feel like they've contributed the crucial thing to making that happen the actors think they've made up those words they you know i as a cinematographer i thought i'd made up those shots uh you know you know what i mean it was he gives you he empowers you to do that in, in his own subtle devious way and that that was a great lesson and i've, got, I've also got to say there was my the other part of it before i got to shoot riff raff with him i was trained a little bit he made a documentary uh, for central television and I think it's called uh, View from the Woodpile. And he dramatized a documentary, basically, of this, the lives of these four or five young kids from Darleston, which is in the black country. The black country, for people who don't know, is the old industrial part of uh, the Midlands, north of Birmingham. And that's uh, really incredible accents and, and amazing kids. And that was, I learned, I'd learned the process by then. And then we just applied that to riffraff, and then riffraff became uh, the stepping-off point for those other twelve films, which you know um, have kind of influenced my whole life. I have to say, and you know, and it, it gives me this very privileged kind of link to when I 
great cinematographers of all time, Chris Menges, and you know he's kind of—I've always feel he's looked over me a little bit and given me a little bit of a inspiration. Yeah, and hopefully, as I get older, I just feel like maybe you can inspire some other filmmakers to carry on. You know what I think is a very valuable part of film of cinema is is this kind of reality, social realism naturalism whatever we want to call it you know documentary style whatever the the term is it's a very genuine and and believable and influential part of cinematography and therefore cinema yeah absolutely it feels definitely feels to me like cinema as distraction has become a thing that has taken over Yes. You know, cinemas and streaming services yeah. where, yeah. but you know, I mean, it's, obviously it's been used as a distraction, as a, as a theatre of mm-hmm. sorts since its inception. But I think that you and Ken, you're shining a torch on the narratives of reality, you know, like Bicycle Thieves, mm-hmm. connects yeah. us in a way that right now in the world, particularly in the Western world, where we need to learn how to see things from somebody else's perspective, to yeah. walk in somebody else's shoes, yeah. to feel compassion. Yeah. You know, the cinema of Ken Loach and the cinema of Barry Aykroyd has never been more more yeah, needed, right. more relevant. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. The uh, yeah. and you have to mention the word Kes. Oh, Kes, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> what, what film influenced you the most? Well, what film influenced has influenced uh, the latter part of the 20th century most. I think, you know, as I think Kez is one, it has to be one of those things, you know, bicycle thieves, all those things. But, you know, we have a great British filmmaker who made one of the most definitive films about injustice and hope and life, you know, and it was, it, and it had, it had realism, it had real people, it has, it moved me incredibly because I grew up in a very similar place in a similar way. I was, you know, uh, and probably treated similarly. I don't remember it so much, but yeah, it wasn't that different. And I, but I saw a film early enough in my life to know that if, if you can make films like Ken, if Ken Loach can make films like Kez, then someone like myself could be part of that process. And the great good fortune of my career, my life was that, one moment in history, I get a phone call when I'm holding my daughter in my arms and going like, mm, it's Ken Loach here. I've just got this little thing and you're probably too busy, but, and from then on it was, uh, you know, it's, it, it definitely leads me to exactly where I am today. And I thank Ken for that. And I, and what a great film. Yeah, it was. Wow. What a, yeah. What a phone call to receive. I, yeah. I think I first saw Kez when I was, probably 11 years old and it was the first time I watched the film that made me angry yeah I was like furious and I had no idea what to do with the fury inside yeah Yeah. I was so utterly devastated still if I channel in fact I think my heart rate has just gone up and my blood pressure (laughs) has just gone through the roof if I if I channel my first watching of that film Mm. it can't help but move me yeah I mean, what's, what, is un, what is unusual in the world of first films is that relationship between the two of you. It's relatively easy to work with a first-time director as a first-time cinematographer because you're all fresh, you're all finding your way. Yeah, yeah. But for yourself, it was somebody who had, you know, Ken had probably made eight feature films beforehand, but yeah. countless 
documentaries and screen two programs. Yeah. Um, were you daunted when you went for your first meeting? Uh, just, <laughs> well, this is how Ken works. It, it, it takes away all that, that kind of, uh, he does it to actors, you know. So when he was casting Bobby Carlyle or someone like that, he, he takes the, he takes the drama out of that. The energy, you know. So the way he met me, I was, like I said, he was working at Central Television, who were kind of supporting him in a way because he wasn't getting much work as doing what he wanted to do. He was making documentaries, anyway. And I was working on a, another documentary by chance for another director on Central. It was about ecology, all those years ago. Not we haven't done much about our environment since but anyway um so i was working on that film and i got uh a call saying well he no he spoke to the director on that film he said can i borrow barry i've got the shit i want to do a shot for a documentary that i'm doing and let's see you're you're filming near leicester and i'm in birmingham let's we'll meet on at the m1 at 11 o'clock on tuesday is that okay and he gave us a place to meet which was a bridge across the motorway, the M1, and and I came with the camera and film stock, and he goes, I'm just borrowing him for an hour, you know, it'd be okay. And we stood on the bridge, literally, like he came from one side, he came from the the west, and I came from the east. We stood on the bridge, and he said, Would you shoot? Uh, I need some shots of this traffic coming down the road. Do you want to just follow that car? And I went, I switched the camera on, and all you can do is tilt. I told him with the car, and I cut the camera, and he. And the first thing he said was, mm, wouldn't you like run a little bit on the beginning so the editor can get the scissors in? I went, okay, yeah, 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 good idea, good idea. So I ran like five, six seconds, and then, then I followed the car down, and then I cut the camera. And wouldn't you leave the um, a little bit five seconds at the end so the editor can get the scissors in? I went, yeah, yeah, I would. And he knew then that I was going to like listen to what he said. And I think the only other conversation we had about technique was about just how much headroom, well, two things, just as uh, how much headroom you should leave. So that, and it's always a small amount, but it's the right amount. And that's mostly so that sound can get in. Because in this style of filmmaking, you have to let the sound recorders get in, uh, which, again, I learned on documentaries. And the other thing that he taught me was the golden section. So that when someone leaves a frame, you let them leave through a doorway you don't take it to the edge of the frame. You don't leave it in the middle of the frame. You take it to a third of the frame. It was simple. It was things I knew in life because I'd gone through art college. I knew all about this stuff. You know, he he just wanted a classical look to what is uh, a radical modern filmmaking, which is, you know, drama of the, the quality of Kez, I, I wish, yeah. Always channeling your inner Chris Menges. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I guess two questions rolled into one. If you were to have your time again and you were to reshoot Riff Raff or you were to plunge yourself back to that phone call with Ken, what would you change? Would you change anything? What would you do differently? If I was the person I am now, I probably would never have got the job because I've got too much experience. That was one of the things that he was testing. You know, he did. He he wanted a blank sheet like he does with his actors, so that he could, so that then he can influence them. Whereas now, so if I was to do it now, I'd go, I'd go there with an arrogance that says I'm going to use zoom lenses. Uh, it would not, you know, I don't have to do that, but I would say 
yeah, could, this could be better if we did this on a zoom lens. And, you know, I remember trying to get on some of the later films just to do a tracking shot. In, uh, and and I had to, I'd have to point out that in Kez there are tracking shots. I'd have to, I'd have to give him a reason to say, um, <laughs> You know, you have to, there's history yeah. here. Can you have history with a yeah, dog? Exactly. I had to try and show him. You like, like there's a shot in cares from a tree looking down. So you could do that shot. That's valid because you've done it before. Chris wanted to do that, so you did it. You know, when I say tracking shot, it's you're in the back of a van um, with the camera. The actor starts running down the street, and you pull out of a side street and into a really active, busy place, and you're just shooting from the from the you know. It was a, like an open, it was a pickup truck type thing. But, you know, so we were visible, but the, the real world didn't know we were coming. So that, and that was the tracking shot and having run down yeah. the street. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, it was, these are very small things that every time I started, you know, as the later films went on, we would try and make a little change <laughs> in my mind, at least we're trying to make a little change into what, the style was and add something nowadays if i went into that i'd want to kind of overhaul the the whole business but i would never win because ken would always make the same film that he's always done and i, I think i hope he's got another film in it he keeps saying that he that he's retired and he keeps also saying that he's got one more film in him so i, I hope so we all hope so. Yeah, we need Ken Loach right now to remind us of, of our kindness. Um, and what for, I guess not for your young self, but for young filmmakers who haven't yet begun their journey, if you were to give them a bit of guidance as to how to form themselves? Well, I mean, the, the advantage today is that you can see and watch uh, and, be, and as long as be discerning in what you see, you know, don't get drawn into the glitz and glamour of, of filmmaking, the idea that it's the bigger, the better, the, the more equipment you use, the better it'll be. Uh, it won't, you know, find, find your kind of inner self. Try and find a, a voice of your own. And I, this is my personal view. I think you should always, everyone should be striving to express themselves as much as, as being able to accomplish like difficult things, you know, crane shots or dollies or cranes or, you know, I mean, they're all tools to be used, all get to know all that, be, you know, there's every bit of equipment, but get on and find your own way of using the, the, that equipment and, and ha find a way to tell stories. If you can do that, then there'll always be work, <laughs> which is what we do. And, and then, the, you know, a kind of a word of warning in a sense is that, you know, there's a, there is a move in technologically to eradicate the lens, you know, to, to put, to make images via computers and, uh, and algorithms and by copying or actors, you know, copying their face, the movement, the action. They also do this with, with camera moves and lighting and blah, blah, blah. The, the whole thing is able to be put in through, to be made by, via computers in dark rooms. And that's not cinema. The real cinema is real people interacting with other people and making stories that move us. And I think that's you know, a legacy that Ken Loach will leave behind when he finishes making films and he will 
you know, and we'll be able to look back at all that stuff that he's done and realize that he influenced the world in a massive way, I think. Uh, and I, you know, I'm really honored that I played a little part in that. And that since not working with him, I've tried to move on to something else. That's not an answer. That doesn't tell anyone how to make films, but it's get, have a passion, get on and do it. Amazing, amazing. I think that is exactly the sort of answer that everyone should be told, that should be listened to. There's no no amount of, you know, filmmaking can really be passed from cinematographer to cinematographer, I don't think. I think no. it's about encouraging the inner voice, about building confidence in using tools and throwing those tools away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult times. It's, it's good times because anyone can make a film with a small amount of equipment and edit do all that stuff great but um convincing people to fund that film you know it goes back to what you said at the beginning you know wealthy people people with the background of you, you know will get on further than if, if you were uh billy casper you know he didn't have a chance to make be a filmmaker and i unfortunately i think i picked it up for him and but that was you know in in kez it's like you've got to be that kid like that wouldn't uh, didn't have a hope and that's what that is what makes you angry. But somehow that film also makes you, it gives leaves you with a positive feeling that we must change the world. And I think that's what that what influenced me a lot. I think just to say that I think the way you get influenced is by recognizing what is influential, you know. And uh, and that's the often the smallest things, you know. There's something in a film that makes you, you know, it excites you. And find out how to do that and make it, uh, and then make it better and do it more and be good at it, you know, and that, that way, and dare to break some of the rules as well and invent something. It's still, it's still a growing art form. It hasn't stopped, although I've got to say Hollywood would love to just have it stand still while they make money from it. It's, you know, look at world cinema. It's still progressing and it will always progress and it will never be replaced by computer screens as long as lenses exist and they will forever so long live cinema long live cinema what an amazing sentiment barry Ackroyd, thank you very very much for joining me today for allowing this conversation to take place for taking yourself back to 1990 to tottenham to a building site full of dust yes. thank you for joining <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Chris. It was great talking to you and I uh, hope this all works out good. Thanks. So, please like or subscribe or any other thing you'd like to do with a podcast. But most importantly, join me again for the next conversation in Podcast 104 with cinematographer Harris Zambalukos. Thanks again.